Well, many of you uh, in Atlantic Canada have Scottish ties, don't you? Yes, is that true? Yes. So make sure and go over and see Aileen and Janice. I want them to be successful presenters because this is their first time at a table. And so they're a little bit, they're a little bit shy and nervous. And I want them to be able to, I want Aileen to be able to go back and tell Tim, I did fabulously. And um, women swarmed to the table. So make sure you go over and, and have a look at their information. Uh, I want you to bring up the screen for the stress screen, if you could. We're going to go in a little bit of a different direction this morning. Um, I just listening, sitting and listening to Jani speak yesterday about uh, grace in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the desert. Uh, just my heart was stirred and I thought, you know, that the Lord has a little bit more work to do and um, I was just contemplating and praying last night and, and uh, just got the go-ahead from him to go this direction. So we're going to continue on with her theme uh, in terms of just seeing God in the stresses and in the hardships of life because I think a lot of you, that's where you are. And I know that many of you are in ministry. Um, others of you uh, perhaps are not uh, in ministry full-time, but of course we're all in ministry, but just the stresses of life are hard. So there's this stress chart, and um, it actually, oops, I forgot my cheat sheet notes. I'll just grab them. It is called the Holman and Rahi, or Ray, any psychologists here? Ray, is that how you say it? Stress chart, life events stress chart. And it actually has uh, 43 stressful life events and the value of each that you get like a point value. And you get to add up all the stressors in your life in the last year. And then based on your score, you get to determine whether you were in a low or a mid or a high risk category for getting uh, like some sort of life-threatening illness or disease or stress-related illness. So if you have low susceptibility, you know, 1 to 149, 150 and above. So they've got different things like, you know, divorce, marital separation, getting married. It's a good thing, but it's stressful. Retirement, pregnancy, um, you know, change, different line of work. You got a mortgage and uh, minor violation of the law. I got a traffic ticket a few weeks ago. Don't tell anyone. Um, the last one I added, it's really not on there if you can read that. <laughs> Listening to a boring speaker. <laughs> Stressful. <laughs> okay, so you have all these. Last time I actually I took the time to add up all my score, I was at, um, what was I at? 400 and something. And which, which uh, so that's bad. So if I keel over, call 911. Um, Surveys and research, actually, you can take that down, that's fine. Thank you. Uh, surveys and research report that in the past two decades, that's number one problem for us in North America is stress and stress-related illnesses. And 43% of adults suffer those effects. 75 to 90% of all visits to, emergency or to primary care physicians are for stress. Stress has been related to all of the leading causes of death, heart disease, cancer, lung ailments, accidents, 
um, suicide, all of that. And you can usually tell if you're stressed or if you're exhibiting the three, if you're exhibiting the three stress emotions, which are anger, anxiety, or irritability. Those are stress emotions. None of us are angry, irritable, or anxious, are we? No. Yeah, for sure, right? We all, we all experience those. So if we... But, and, and I know that in my life there have been a lot of different stressors. And today, we're, this morning, we're going to talk about finding the grace of God through the stresses of life, and particularly when there are big stressors in life. And there are so many things in terms of culture, cultural ways, you know, that we're told that we can relieve stress, that, you know, go for a massage, um, listen to one of those irritating zen music things with baby whales squealing in the background uh, you know there's so many things that we're told to relieve stress but you know take a holiday get your husband to rub your feet you know for some of us that may be more stressful but so many of us spin in this constant state of anxiety in life, and our schedules are frenzied, and our relationships are strained, and we're chronically exhausted, and we worry, and we fret, and we're irritable, and we're snappy, and snarky, and angry, short-tempered, and experience what I call a perpetual fatigue of the soul. And we can make choices uh, in order to alleviate some of the stressors in our life, we can make some choices in terms of just um, our schedules, boundaries, getting good exercise, and we can take some clutter out of the everyday of life. But what about those times when life throws us a big curveball, something we haven't expected and we're not prepared for? Uh, and something just comes down that, that we're just not ready for, and it's really difficult to deal with, like sickness or death or a wayward child or an unfaithful husband or a fractured relationship. How can we find the peace of God? How can we live in the grace of God in those moments? Now, I have had uh, huge waves hit my boat over the years, uh, like when my youngest son uh, lost his hearing at the age of two, so I all of a sudden had a special needs child, severely hearing impaired. Uh, when I miscarried twins and just had a lot of physical repercussions after that, lost, lost two babies, or the time we almost lost a, our other son to staph infection, or the time, you know, my husband's appendix burst and or the time when his business was in crisis and we were struggling financially, or the spurious lawsuit, the human rights case against us, or there, there have been uh, family conflicts, there have been church conflicts, there have been times when we've been in ch the church has split. It's been very difficult. There have been uh, even surrounding my family sometimes, and there's been betrayals, there's been disappointments. And as Jannie said, if you haven't hit a big wave or if a big wave hasn't hit your boat, it just is yet. <laughs> because they come. They come in life. And we all go through that and we all experience that. It's, it's a part 
of living that we experience significant storms in our lives. And I know that many of you can relate to Job, who was reeling after the big wave hit his boat, and he said, I have no peace, I have no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. And some of you are in that spot, even this morning, of just experiencing that turmoil in your lives. The disciples were in that boat on the stormy night, and that's the story we're going to have a look at this morning. In fear and in panic, they screamed at Jesus with the question, don't you care? Don't you care that we're drowning? And they learned an important lesson that night. They learned that fearful anxiety is a wound of the heart. It's a brokenness. It's a symptom of a fractured spirit. It's a fatigue of the soul that can only be relieved by entering into the rest and the peace and the grace of Christ. So we're going to take a look at that story, and I hope that uh, we're going to learn a few things about how to enter into the peace of Christ in the middle of a storm and to experience the grace of God flood into our lives when we are walking through a storm. So turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. And I am going to start reading at verse 35. Mark 4, 35. That day, when evening came, he said, to the, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Sea of Galilee is a shallow basin and it's surrounded by high hills and it's subject to being hit by very sudden and unexpected and furious storms. They just come fast and they can come furious. And in this account, the disciples panicked when there was a particularly violent storm. They were afraid that the chaos was going to overwhelm them. But Jesus rebuked them for their response. And according to him, with him in their boat, they should have experienced peace and not panic in the middle of the storm. So I'm going to pick out a couple of panic producers that I see in this passage. Reasons that they panicked that are very similar to the reasons that we get anxious and we panic in the stresses of life. And I think that you'll see that your panic producers, their panic producers, are the same attitudes and thoughts that produce panics in our spirits when we face the of life. And the first one, the first panic producer is misplaced fear. Now, in this passage, the disciples experienced two kinds of fear, and one type was misplaced, one was not. The first type of fear was an apprehensive fear. The disciples were afraid that the storm was going to overwhelm their boat. They were going to drown. It was big, it was dark, it was furious, and it was too much for them to handle. 
And it must have really been quite the storm to frighten them because they were seasoned fishermen. You have to remember that these guys were used to being out on the water. They were used to the you know, ups and downs and the bumps of the sea. So, so it must have been a, a really particularly violent storm. When this particular storm hit, even these seasoned mariners panicked. They were filled with fear. And what's interesting to me is what we read further on in the passage. The storm hit, and they were afraid. But then Jesus calmed the storm, and the sea became perfectly still. And what was their response? They were terrified. It's like, yeah, we were afraid, and now we're shaking. So they were more afraid of the power that Christ demonstrated than they had been of the storm. Verse 41 says that they feared exceedingly. So that's the second type of fear, reverential fear, fear of God. So what is fear? Basically, fear is seeing yourself as very small and something else as very big. And apprehensive fear is a negative motion, and we're afraid when we're facing circumstances that are bigger and more powerful than we are. Something is out of our control. That is big, and I am small, and it is going to overwhelm me. I'm afraid because I recognize that this situation is bigger than me. It could hurt me. It is hurting me, and it will probably continue to hurt me. And whether my storm has to do with fractured relationships, my marriage, my children, my family, my church, my friends, my health, finances, pressures at work, loss, whatever it is, I realize that I am not big enough to handle it. I don't have the resources, I don't have the time, I don't have the ability, I don't have the capacity. I've tried and tried, it is beyond my control, it's overwhelming me. Now, apprehensive fear produces panic, it produces anxiety. Now, reverential fear is quite different. Reverential fear is a positive emotion. We revere Christ because we know that he is bigger and he is more powerful than us and he is bigger and more powerful than any circumstance we might face. God is bigger than the storm, he's greater than I am, and he's in my boat working on my behalf. See, reverential fear produces awe and worship and righteousness, and it brings about peace. Disciples' fear was misplaced. They feared the circumstances more than they feared Christ. They saw the circumstances as bigger than him. And their core belief here, really underlying all of this fear, was that God isn't big enough. That was their core belief. God is not big enough. Have you ever thought that? <laughs> Have you ever looked at your circumstances and thought, this one is too big for God? Too big. It's too big. He can't bring love back into this marriage. He can't change that person's heart. He can't bring back that wayward child. He can't cure this illness. He can't restore unity to this church. He can't resolve this crisis, he's just not big enough. Maybe you wouldn't exactly say it in so many words, but your anxiousness and your lack of peace indicate that that's what you truly believe. There was a lady, and her family called her Baba, Baba Ann. And Baba, as some of you may know, is a Ukrainian word for grandma. 
So Baba. And Baba Ann's son, Nicky, was a handsome and strapping, boisterous young man, and he had a knack for working with wood. And Baba Ann hoped for big things for Nikki, and she would always say, Nikki, God is big, and God has big plans for you. And Nikki became, grew up and became a craftsman, and then studied to become, become a teacher so he could impart his skill of working with wood to others. And along the way, the, we married his childhood sweetheart, Sandra, and soon their nest was filled with four cherub-cheeked little babies three girls and a boy, and Baba Ann could not have been more proud. But there's a darkness lurking in Nikki's spirit, a deep darkness no one knew it was there. His discontentment soon spilled out over the confines of his marriage bed, and he began to seek solace in the arms of other women, and attraction hemorrhaged into sexual addiction, and there were secrets and broken trusts and pornography and infidelity, and Counseling didn't help, and after 10 years of marriage, Sandra couldn't take it anymore. She took the girls, gave them the boy, and went on her way. And in her mind, there was no hope for Nikki. But Baba Ann didn't give up hope. Baba Ann continued to pray, and she continued to pray, and she prayed, God, you are big, and you are mighty, and you can change my boy. And the years passed, and the darkness in Nikki's spirit didn't. He was arrogant, and he was controlling, he was manipulative, filled with lust, and woman after woman passed through his doors. And his children, now adults themselves, gave up in their minds. Nikki would never change. Only Baba Ann held out hope. And every day she prayed, God, you were big, and you were big enough to change my boy. She held on to hope, but she never lived to see it. Baba Ann died. She never did see Nikki change, but the rest of the family did. Five years after she died, 30 years after his marriage broke down, Nikki did change. And imagine how his former wife felt. Imagine her shock when he knelt at her feet, broken and weeping and begging her forgiveness. And that Christmas, he crafted four crosses out of wood, three for his girls and one for his boy. And at the age of 62 years of age, Nikki was radically transformed by the power of Jesus. And my friends, Greg and Maureen, Nikki's kids, <laughs> didn't think it was possible. But Baba Ann was right along along. God is big, and God had big plans for Nikki. See, the disciples in the boat on that stormy night thought Christ can't do anything about this storm. These circumstances are out of his control. But then Jesus got up and showed them that even the wildest, craziest, most ferocious storm is not out of his control. And when they saw his power and his glory, they were terrified. They fell on their faces and asked each other, who is this in our boat? We had no idea he had this much power. We had no idea there was this much behind the sky. See, when our fear is misplaced, our primary concern is being at peace with our circumstances. We want the storm to stop. 
We want it to be over with. We don't want to be rocked and to be hit with those waves and the rain and, and, and all the discomfort. Our, our primary concern is getting the storm to stop. But when we see Christ for who he is, the almighty God and the king of glory, our primary concern is being at peace with him. Reverential fear, the fear of God leads to holy living. And though I may desire that my difficult circumstances are over and that they may be made right, I am more concerned about being right with God. Being in the right circumstance may not bring you peace, but being right with God always leads to peace. Always. Psalm 85.10, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Isaiah 32.17, the fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. Isaiah 57.2, those who walk uprightly enter into peace. See, the Bible teaches that there is no peace outside of a relationship with Jesus. True peace is not dependent on your circumstances. It's dependent on a person. Jesus is the prince of peace. He orders chaos. He reconciles relationships between God and man, man and one, man and man. He is the one who gives rest and peace. Ephesians 2.14 says he himself is our peace. So if you have Jesus, you have peace sitting right there in your boat. And that's a hard lesson to learn and to grab hold of. I know I've gone through many storms, and the Lord has had to teach me time and time and time again. Uh, Brent and I were sitting down, and once we were talking, we were saying, okay, I think we're, you know, we're at a time of crisis. There's so much happening now. And we kind of looked at each other and burst out laughing. Kind of, um, when have we not been at a time of crisis? <laughs> well, I think there was August, like about 15 years ago. That, that was a pretty good month. <laughs> There's a lot that comes into our lives. A lot, all the time. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is my peace. If I have Jesus in my boat and I believe that he is bigger than any circumstance, I don't need to be afraid of the storm. I don't need to be afraid when those things hit my boat. Baba Ann held on to hope for more than 25 years and she had peace and she was unafraid because she knew that God was big enough. Do you know that the most frequent command in the Bible is fear not? Someone added up, they said there are 366 fear not verses. And uh, one for every day of the year and one for extra for leap years, apparently. <laughs> and the repeated message is this, if Christ is in your boat, you do not need to be afraid. God is bigger. So if you're in the middle of the storm or the next time a really big storm hits your boat, Take, and you feel afraid, take your eyes off the bigness of the circumstance and put your eyes onto the bigness of God in order to find peace. So the first panic producer, misplaced fear. Second panic producer is misplaced trust. In verse 37, we see that the waves were raking over the boat so severely that it was nearly swamped. They were in big 
trouble, boatload of trouble. <laughs> there you go. Disciples were undoubtedly doing some pretty serious bailing. I, Peter, John, Mark, James, Matthew, the boys were scooping water out just as fast as they could. They had buckets and boots and plates and anything that could scoop water was scooping water. And at first they trusted their own capacity to keep the boat from going under. They were fishermen, after all. They knew what to do. It's kind of, I can kind of just imagine it. Peter was out there, you know, directing. He's the take charge cleric type, you know, bail, bail, all hands on deck. Mark, get there. James, over there. Bail, bail, bail. Let's go. And there were all kinds of commotion going on. And during this whole crisis, Jesus remained asleep in the stern of the boat. Now, how do you feel when you are in crisis and someone who supposedly loves you and is in the situation with you remains oblivious to your predicament? Um, when I was in the dire pain of labor before the days of epidurals, giving birth to my first son, and, and uh, my husband sat in the chair next to me reading the sports page and munching on his bagel, I knew how I felt. I was mad. I ripped that newspaper out of his hands, threw it on the floor, and said, I expect you to suffer with me. <laughs> I was angry because I was suffering, and he didn't care, and he was the one who got me there. <laughs> so the reason that the disciples woke Christ may have been that they were ticked off that he was sleeping and not helping them bail. Don't you care if we drown? Don't you see that we're in crisis? Why are you sleeping and not manning a bucket? Why aren't you helping us? They didn't think that Jesus was interested enough. And we think that sometimes, don't we? Oh, maybe we think that God is big enough. We know that he's big enough, but we question whether he's interested enough in us to help. Oh, he's interested in that other church down the street or those missionaries or that new believer or those people over there in Scotland. But is he really interested in me? That's what you wonder. And so we rely on our own ability and our own competency before asking him to intervene. When our trust is misplaced, our primary concern is gaining control over the situation. I want to gain control. I'm going to do everything I can to, for me to make it work. But when our trust is Christ-centered, our primary concern is relinquishing control to the one who is truly in control and to become more dependent on him through prayer. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Ladies, let me tell you something. It's because big waves have hit my boat that I learned how to pray. It's because of waves that hit my boat that I d developed disciplines of fasting and stillness. It's because the waves hit my boat that I learned to lean in and throw myself at Jesus because I had nothing else. Nothing. 
nothing. I was bailing my head out and my boat's going under. It's because of those situations that I learned how to trust in Jesus and not in myself. And if I had never experienced a storm in my life, I would not have learned how to trust him. So the only way to experience the fullness of God's rest is to absolute and full surrender to him and to trust and depend on his resources. He has so much. We have nothing and little, and yet through him, we have everything. We have everything, we have all the resources that we need. There was a lady named Hetty Green. Have any of you ever heard of her? She lived in the 1800s. Hetty Green was, uh, her nickname was the Witch of Wall Street. Uh, she, her father left her a $6 million inheritance, and over the course of her lifetime, this money grew to $100 million. And by the time of her death in 1896, she was the richest woman in the world. Incredibly rich woman. But here's the thing. Hattie lived the life of a miserly pauper. She refused to spend a penny of her inheritance. She wouldn't touch it. Um, she wore the same dress every day, she used newspapers pulled from the trash cans as her undergarments. She refused to heat her, her rental apartment or even to cook her meals. She, didn't want, she wanted to save money on fuel so she wouldn't even heat her apartment. She ate mostly dry oatmeal. And when her son Edward was nine years old and he was run over by a wagon and his leg was injured, um, she refused to call a doctor because the doctor was going to charge her money. Instead, she took the boy to a number of free clinics and his leg had to be amputated because of it. So what a sad story. She had rights to all that money. Her father had left her millions. She was a rich woman, millions and millions of dollars, and yet she refused to touch her inheritance and she struggled long trying to make it on her own resources. It's a little bit of an instructive story for us because I think that that's how we often roll. Our Father has unlimited resources, and we're relying on bailing with our own little bucket, trying to keep the boat from going under. Instead of tapping into the riches of our God, we rely on ourselves and our own capacity. When waves hit your boat, you can choose who you're going to trust. You can choose who you're going to trust. Are you going to trust in yourself and your own know-how and your ability? And are you going to be a control freak and get your hands in there and try and fix the situation? Or are you just going to throw yourself on God in prayer and trust him? Peace comes when we relinquish control. Peace will come for you when you take your hands off that steering wheel and hand that situation over to God. That's not easy to do, not easy. And yet that's the place where we experience his power come into our lives. The Bible says you keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on you because he trusts in you. The final panic producer's misplaced expectation. See, the disciples had certain expectations of what they wanted Jesus to do. 
At the very least, they wanted him to come and help bail water or perhaps to multiply the buckets so they'd have more bailing. You know, he, they just watched him. He did that with the loaves and fishes. Do it with the buckets. We need more buckets. Multiply them. We need 2,000 of them. Or maybe just to steady the boat so they could make it to shore. Here's the thing, though, ladies. Whenever we expect God to comply with our agenda, whenever we expect him to do what we want, when we want it, and how we want it, we have misplaced expectations. When our expectation is misplaced, our primary concern is finding a positive short-term resolution for the situation. So we experience disappointment and disillusionment and despair when God doesn't come through in the way we want him, and we begin to question his goodness. Okay, God may be big enough, and he tells me that he's interested enough, so I guess that he's just not good enough. He likes seeing me suffer. He likes seeing me miserable. He withholds from me what is in his power to give. Why? Have you ever asked that question? Why? Why? very close friend of ours uh, named Rusty, fellow actually who discipled Brent when he first became a Christian, he's been a lifelong friend, um, he was diagnosed with cancer and he had the tumor size of a large sausage behind his stomach and the cancer had sp spread into his lymph nodes and the prognosis was not good at all. And at the time, Rusty was a young father. He had three preschool children. He himself had grown up without a father because his own father had died when he was very young. So there's this big storm facing our friends, uh, Rusty, and her name is Mercy, his wife's name. What a big storm. And we began to pray and throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Uh, surgeon removed as much of the tumor as they could, and then our friend Rusty started the process of chemo and radiation. It did not look good. And we continued to pray and throw ourselves on the mercy of God, asking him to heal our friend. And after a few chemo treatments, Rusty began to sense that God had healed him. He knew it in his spirit. And sure enough, on the fourth course of chemo, he said, you know what, it, it, check on it. And the oncologist said, listen, we haven't been able to find any traces of cancer the last three times you've been in. <laughs> there was not a trace of tumor remaining. There was not a cancer marker to be found in his blood work. There was no cancer when they dissected his lymph nodes, so they stopped treatment. And Rusty has been healthy and cancer-free ever since, more than 15 years. God has miraculously healed him. A few years ago, there was another friend of ours who's diagnosed with the very same kind of stomach cancer. His name was Johnny. And we began to pray and throw ourselves on the mercy of God. We wanted Johnny to be healed as Rusty was. And... We prayed and prayed, asked for his healing, but the cancer got worse. And Johnny's stomach ballooned out into an enormous size and his face and limbs wasted away. He went through excruciating pain and suffering. And we continued to pray and throw ourselves on the mercy of God, asking him to miraculously intervene and heal Johnny. And in the end, God did heal Johnny, but not in the way we expected. Johnny went home to be with the Lord and left behind a wife and two sons and a young daughter. 
So often we want to control God, but his ways are not our ways. They are beyond ours. We don't always understand them. I don't always understand them. I, I don't know often what to say when I'm comforting women other than I don't understand the ways of God. But I know he is good. Be assured that he may not always do what we ask of him. He is good. He is good. I asked Rusty um, to reflect on the question, the why question. I said, you know, sent him an email and said, reflect on this why question with me. Why? Why? You were healed. Johnny wasn't. Why? Same God. Same amount of prayer. Maybe we even prayed more for Johnny. (laughs) Why? This is what he said. I see that period of cancer as a great gift on so many levels. That I was healed is icing on the cake. There's something very purging about coming to a point where I could do nothing else but be grateful and worship this God who has taken me on this adventure. I described the time strapped into a wild roller coaster and told to enjoy the ride. (laughs) People have asked me why I was healed and others, like Johnny, are not. I insist that this is the wrong question. I think the why question is a question that is designed not to be answered. It is a question that reflects petulance, not faith. It is a question that really isn't expecting an answer, or at least one with which we will be satisfied. I think the better question is what, and I think Johnny reflected this in his dying days. What now, Father? What do I do now? What are you doing with me? What are you doing in and through this situation? The what question actually expects an answer, and indeed, I believe that's the whole point of difficulties, to ask our Father for direction and comfort during the time that we need it so desperately, and to trust him. Why or why me is subversively saying, you're wrong, I will not accept your sovereignty and wisdom. I question your goodness. Some might say that it's easy for me to say this since I am, after all, still alive. But I insist that I'm just as ready to die now as I was back then. Therefore, I am really able to live. I do not live in fear of diseases like cancer or being kidnapped or killed in Colombia or being eaten by a brown bear in Jasper. Did I tell you we're going to the mountains on Thursday? (laughs) As Paul said, whether I live or die, I live to Christ. Johnny lived that out. I only hope to do the same. I'm learning to live by faith and to know that all that I am and have belongs to our Father who is both gracious and good. We do not always know his ways. He does not always grant us what we desire when we desire it, how we desire it. But he's good. He is good. And I think of that part in the C.S. Lewis story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's one of my favorite that I read to my children repeatedly growing up. And I think of that place where Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are telling the children about Aslan. And Aslan, of course, allegorically represents Christ. And it goes like this. Is, is, is he a man? asked Lucy. 
Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. When the disciples witnessed the power of Christ in calming the storm, their knees knocked. Christ did not do what they expected. He is not tame. We do not control him. He is God and we are not. But he is good. He is so very good. And he loves us so very much. God may not do what we expect, but we can be confident that in the end, from an eternal perspective, the outcome is going to far exceed our wildest hopes and dreams. And like the disciples, we can and we will experience the peace of God and make it to the other side. We're going to make it to the other side. And even when those storms hit our boats, and I think even about all the, the persecuted and suffering Christians in the world now who are giving their lives for the gospel, they are making it to the other side. And it's amazing. And my very favorite chapter in the whole Bible is in Revelation chapter 21 when we will see Jesus face to face and there will be no more tears and no more pain and no more suffering. We will see him and we will be with God and we will make it to the other side. And sometimes that's the only hope that you have to hang on to, to hang on to Jesus, to know that there's something more. And sometimes your way is so dark that you, it presses so darkly on you that you can barely breathe that day and you can only put one step in front of the next. I know I've been there. But you will make it to the other side. You will with God in your boat. And so, ladies, I just want to take this home practically for you. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. We have a sure and steadfast anchor. So in the stresses of life, in the difficulties of life, Christ is our anchor. He is our peace. I just want you to bow your heads in prayer for a moment.
Now, ladies, if you're going through a tough time, um, difficult situation, stresses in your life, would you please stand? I want, I want you to receive some special prayer this morning. Someone go out and get some Kleenex pass around, please. Thank you. And now, um, you ladies who are still sitting, come around some of these ladies and reach out your hands on them. It's about a third to a half of us. <laughs> and the other third to a half had have either gone or it's coming, those waves. Just gather around the ladies. And now I'm just going to give you a few minutes before I pray. I just want you to claim the peace of Christ and the power of Christ to come into the situation for your dear sister there that you're praying for, okay? Pray out loud, do it, just go for it. Thank you. Just 